tonight on Arena. Sinead Gleeson on Still Pictures from Janet Malcolm and we speak to Patricia Hurl about her retrospective at IMA. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Still Pictures is the last book we can expect from the late great Janet Malcolm, and it is the last book we might have expected from her, given that she was famously suspicious of autobiography. She died in uh, the United States in twenty twenty one at the age of eighty six, and in that long lifetime, she was rightly feted as one of the leading non fiction writers of the age. She was best known for her books, including The Journalist and the Murder. 41 False Starts and for her New Yorker columns. Still Pictures is her posthumous memoir, a story told via 12 photos, a life that began in Czechoslovakia in 1934. Sinead Gleeson has been reading Still Pictures for us. She joins me now on the line. I suppose any fan of non-fiction will probably be aware of the name Janet Malcolm, Sinead, but maybe you'd just remind us about... Why, who she was and why she stood out so much in that world of non-fiction. Well, Sean, I think she was one of that, uh, a wave. Of, she was a journalist, a, a writer and, and a, a critic, but also a photographer herself. Um, but I think she was one of those writers that uh, was kind of came within a wave people were, they were journalists who realised the possibility of narrative non-fiction so blending, you know, reportage, the essay, cultural criticism mm. people will uh, often lump her in, uh, uh, rightly so with people like Joan Didion, Susan Sontag um, but I think that she's a very straightforward and very unsentimental writer and it's as if there's, there's any part of the book where there might be emotion, where any of her own experience or emotional um, take on things will creep in, will sort of sully a piece of writing and it's very much the tone of this book the, the MO is very, you know, keep your distance from a subject, objectivity um, and being unflinching. And I think that that's very much, she, she, as you mentioned in the introduction, she mm. has, I think she was very conflicted about the idea of autobiography and telling your own story and inserting yourself in, into the story. When all journalists and I think, you know, academics are often told to leave the eye out of it. And I think that's why that very distinctive style of hers is very much her tr- trying to immerse herself, but, but stay somewhere peripheral, which sounds quite contradictory, but I think she managed to do that in her work. Yeah, and I suppose that that sounds more manageable when the subject of your writing is somebody else or some other place or some other time even perhaps. But when the subject of your writing is yourself, um, that kind of sets up a, a series of difficulties. But the title of the, the book here, Still Pictures, is, 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 is a reference to Janet Malcolm and her background in photography. How does that fit into the way the book is presented to us? Well, I, I think she was never going to write something straightforwardly autobiographical. And I think in the afterward, her daughter writes the afterwards and says, you know, this was a book in in process uh, while while Malcolm was still alive before her illness. And there's, you know, the final essay missing. But I think she was always going to approach it looking at other people and objects and things around her. So it starts very much with her family, her parents growing up, her family fled um, Nazi persecution. They're a Jewish family and they moved to America. And it's, a, it's again about her her observations that uh, what it was like to come to America and um, 
her Jewishness, which her, her parents never spoke to her about. And she had this kind of, there was a secrecy around being a Jewish family. Also assimilating into America, that kind of, you know, the American dream being available if you were a certain mm. kind of class and you had money. But so she takes these pictures of, you know, her, her family, her friends, her school friends, neighbours, friends of her parents. Um, but there's a, what, what becomes very evident very quickly in a book, uh, uh, which is a kind of strange thing, actually, in a book of photography. She constantly says throughout that I don't remember this moment. I can't remember what's going on in this picture. So she's a bit of an unreliable narrator. Mm. And I think that's this kind of ties into this distancing technique that she's always sort of favoured. So there's lots of sort of scenes in the book that are clearly very poignant, but she says she doesn't remember. And I don't know whether that's her being playful yeah. or again, it's putting herself at an emotional remove deliberately because some of them, you know, are representative of very interesting and dark times, obviously, with that kind of history. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that there are photographs at the beginning of each of the 12 essays, it kind of gives this impression. I know, obviously, photographs can be faked like anything else, but you're given the sense of some kind of factual item to start the to start the essay off. Does it become frustrating when you look at the photograph and then she belittles it by saying, I don't remember that. Or, I can barely even see who's in that photograph because she, she says things like that, <laughs> you know, when you're going, well, why did you put it there if you can barely see who's in it? Yeah, well, I think it's very much her style. I mean, you know, it, it, Malcolm in her work as a reporter and as, as a columnist and as a, a reviewer was always interested in facts and telling it like it is. Mm. And that kind of sparsity, that kind of in, interrogative style that she has is in all of the work and when she does it in her own work I I think it's a way of um, I wasn't I mean I often think that essays are never about one thing even if you try to make an essay about a singular subject it's very hard to do it always ends up being digressive and your brain drags you off in different directions Mm. and I think that's what Malcolm is saying she's using them as a starting point and sometimes she'll talk about like there's one essay about four women that her family knew and you think you're going to get these massive accounts of these really deeply complex and rich lives and they're all they're actually very banal and ordinary women and I think what she's actually talking about is that sometimes not everybody has a massively interesting life but but that you remember them and I think a lot of what the book is trying to do is not to tell you a story about loads of brilliant or well taken photographs it's to tell you about that you've no control over what your mind remembers and she says that at a certain point like that our memories are like negative some of them end up as contact sheets some of them end up as fully developed photographs and I think we all have that experience of something inconsequential that stays with us when something maybe a much bigger moment in our lives is, is sort of, you know, packed away further in the archive of our brains. Yeah, but um, she, and I think that's what the point of that is. Yeah, she's she's interesting on um, the difference between, I suppose, memoir, you might call it, and autobiography. Um, she says at one point along the way, uh, of her father oh my mind is filled with lovely plotless memories of him and then later on we get this idea that you know autobiography is when you try to put a plot on those plotless men- memories how does the book read in that respect because a plotless book can be hard to get your mind around yeah, for some people, I, I I think possibly that that's that could be the case. But she says, and another of her lines from a previous essay is, you know, unlike the eye of autobiography, who represents the writer, the eye of journalism is connected to the writer in a tenuous way, the, the way Superman is connected to Clark Kent. <laughs> and I think again, she's she constantly reminds us throughout this book that she's looking through a box of letters um, that were in the attic, and she said that autobiography is a misnamed genre, and memory only speaks some of the lines. So again, she's talking about those those bl- blurred lines, mm. those sort of you know the, the every 
everybody in the family has a different memory of an event. And that's what I think the photographs are trying to say. Even when she says she doesn't necessarily remember, there's one uh, childhood trip she talks about not remembering being on an aeroplane. And you think, and she wasn't that young, and you think that, what? why is she telling us that? And I think part of it is it's kind of like a MacGuffin. The trip and the photographs yeah. and this are sort of, you know, they're, they're the suitcase of money in Psycho. It's not meant to be actually about that. It's about to make you think, what do you remember from your own life? And I found when I was reading it, I think a lot of other readers might get this, it will make you think about the moments in your life that you, you, you found that were, were cathartic or that were huge or, or were the complete opposite of that, that you didn't think they had an impact or you didn't realise until a long time later that the impact of, of that particular set of events. I suppose um, very... So it doesn't matter to me that it's plotless, I think, yeah. because Malcolm is such a, a very straightforward and interesting writer. And again, that digressiveness that I talked about, she often uses a photograph, not just to talk about what's in it and the objects and the people, but to talk about the subjects you mentioned, about love yeah. or romance or regret or the legalities or f- Freud who she's very interested in her father was a psychiatrist so again that those it doesn't matter that it's like, that it's it doesn't have a plot it's about making you think about loads of other subjects well, I guess I, it, it's a very immersive book in that way and it's, it, it's actually very as I, I said at the start that her, her writing can be kind of quite factual and she, you know she keeps herself out of it but there's something very there's an endearing kind of tone to this book that I haven't really seen in her previous right. work there's a warmness um, that has that's kind it's, of hasn't been there in the previous work yeah it strikes me too that what you're saying is you you put you come out the reader comes out of this maybe known more about him or herself than they do about uh, Janet Malcolm. Were there any sections of the book where you kind of found out things about her or parts of her life? You know, the, the, the move, obviously fleeing Nazi Germany in the 30s, coming to New York and establishing herself as this journalist and, and working at the New Yorker. Were there any sections where she really brought you into that new world and immersed you in, in her world? I, I actually, because again, there is such an absence of her own personal life and mm. all her in the previous catalogue of her work. Um, I found those moments quite touching. She talks a lot about, you know, love and being a teenager and, you know, the, the virus of romance fall infected me early talking about it, as long <laughs> as I can remember. I was secretly in love with a boy, which is very kind of coy and very revelatory in a way. She also talks in an essay called Scromness. You can you can actually read it online at Granta, where she talks about a crush on a teenage girl. Um, and even little moments about going to the movies is a great essay about going to see King Kong and being terrified of he- hearing the bongo drums in the night for a long time so again all of this thing she, she always in her previous work it dramatically keeps her si- her, herself behind kind of police lines if you like but in this book there are little moments little reveals and often just as she gives you one and you want more she moves on to the next thing and, and I think that's again her holding on to very tightly to the reins of autobiography mm. because I think she said before she many times that she ha- has a horror of it of revealing too much and that it's boring for people for her to reveal too much for herself when, it, when I think in this case when she did it with some of those moments yeah. it, it isn't at all it's, it's quite actually effective It sounds like a recommendation for you is it a good starting point to have still pictures by Janet Malcolm or would you benefit from starting somewhere else and then coming to this finally Sinead? You, you, you don't have to at all and you don't have to be interested in, in photography but I, I'm, I'm a huge fan I would, she's written an incredible book called The Silent Woman about Sylvia Platt's life um, and a book I really The, the, the Journalist and the Murderer which is a, a brilliant book on the ethics of writing and, and journalism and putting yourself in the story but I, one of my favourites is 41 False Starts uh, which is about her going to interview a, a uh, an artist called David Sal, who she didn't get, doesn't portray very well in the essay, and they became very good friends. And it's forty-one mm. attempts to write this profile that she can't. So it's a kind of the, the problem of the essay becomes a subject of the essay. She has forty-one attempts at starting the essay, and it's it's really excellent. But yeah, she's a she's a very kind of unique writer, um, and I think there's an awful lot of talk about the ways that the personal essay is gone. But I think Malcolm does it in a very uh, d- distinct um, and kind of tightly reined way. But I I, I think it's very admirable. 
Well, um, so it's a recommendation is what I'm taking from you on that particular one, Sinead. Very much so. Yeah. All right. Thanks for speaking with us this evening. That's Sinead Gleeson speaking to us there about still pictures by Janet Malcolm. It's published by Granta. Now, we heard the sad news today of that the writer Deirdre Purcell had died suddenly in her career. Deirdre was an actress at the Abbey Theatre featuring in a number of productions, including The Shock Run and Tarry Flynn, and later worked as an award-winning print journalist and as broadcaster with RTE. She wrote for newspapers, including The Sunday Tribune, where she won a Journalist of the Year Award in 1986 and was the first female anchor of the Nine O'Clock News on RTE television. Purcell was also wrote many critically and commercially acclaimed novels, including Falling for a Dancer, which was adopted for television in 1998, and other novels include A Place of Stones, That Childhood Country, Grace in Winter and Days We Remember. Falling for a Dancer was set in Cork in 1930, where the heroine Elizabeth becomes pregnant outside of marriage and chooses to marry an older man, Neely. The television version featured a young Colin Farrell as Danny McCarthy, a young fellow who dances with Elizabeth, played by Elizabeth Dermot Walsh at a local dance. Here he picks up courage to ask Elizabeth for a dance. I think I might just take it easy. I don't think I'll be drinking anything. Daniel. Sorry, kid. I didn't see you there. Is this next one the lady's choice? Where will you be so I can find you? Excuse me for a second. Would you care to dance, Mrs. Scullard? Well, well. What you make of this, Tilly? I'll dance with you, Daniel. Provided you don't mind dancing with an old married woman. Ah, that dance with Danny throws her true love, Mossy Sheehan, played by Liam Cunningham. It throws his nose out of joint and causes them to become estranged until the end of the novel and the series when Mossy finally declared his love and he did not hold back. I can think of nothing else except you. Since that first time I saw you sitting in your father's car. You were like an angel that first day. Or a child in a painting. You were wearing a blue dress with a big white collar. I had never seen any living creature so beautiful in all my life. You came between me and my sleep that first night. And every night since. Because I fell in love with you, Elizabeth. Completely and forever. Liam Cunningham there as Moisey Sheehan in Falling for a Dancer, the TV miniseries based on the novel by Deirdre Purcell. And Deirdre Purcell's death was announced today. Yeshlov Jay Goro Anam Yulish. Irish Gothic is the title of a major retrospective of the work of artist Patricia Hurl. It's on view at the Irish Museum of Modern Art. Since the 1980s, Patricia Hurl has created work in a range of media that deals with loss, pain, frustration and loneliness. The exhibition features over 70 works, mainly drawn from her early paintings, which are autobiographical in subject, exposing the suburban home as less than perfect. Her work could be described as figurative, but there's always a blurring of lines that veers into abstraction. And she has always been an activist, using her art to protest against injustice, from the Joanna Hayes Kerry Baby scandal to violence against women and the Belfast rape trial. She is currently a member 
of Nakalyaka, collective of eight older William, w- women artists. Keshihi met Patricia in Emma today. They walked through some of the exhibition where Patricia started off by explaining the title of the exhibition, Irish Gothic. You know, uh, traditionally, Gothic was obviously horror uh, films. But for me, I loved um, the painting American Gothic, which people know. Um, Grant Woods did it, and he did it in a square format. And he had, well, it looks like it's just a man and a woman standing in front of their, proudly in front of their house. And I wondered, could I do that? So this is my husband and I in front of our first house with a mortgage on it. And I suppose people say, why did you put the arch around it? But I think we were trapped. I had a, a wooden fence in front of us. The third one here in the room, I, I call this one the company wife. My husband worked for Guinness. I had a good husband. I'm not saying that this is against him in any way. But we were just, I was the wrong person for him. And he didn't even know it, so he was not particularly happy with me now. You know, I turned in from this really nice young 17-year-old girl into an artist, a mind of my own. So I was dragged out to these parties, or no, dinner, dinner parties, at night, whether you like it or not. Because Guinness at the time, I wondered they wouldn't do this now, but they, my husband was in sales, so I had to look well, so I'd get an allowance for clothing and to get my hair done. So when we'd go, say, to the races where they were, the men would all be doing their bit with the company, uh, we'd all, all the wives would wander around with our gins and tonics dressed up to the hilt. So you are the company yeah, wife yeah. and the men are drinking in as, as one side of the painting and the company and wife. And I'm in box. I'm in box. I, li- I really like put up. They're really in boxes as well, I suppose, aren't they? So you, the company wife, there are in a, a navy blue dress. A navy blue with turquoise in it and I've got my gin and tonic in my hands. And you're kind of fading and away. I, 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 I am fading away, you say. It was, I was having a really nice night at home with my kids. I was an st- artist at the time, going to the studio and rushing home and then having to go out for this in the evening. Um, it wasn't easy. And I, I was, we formed a kind of a group where we'd complain, we'd go in to the bar and just sit bitching about the, <laughs> the company. But we didn't do anything about it because the money was quite good. So there you go. And we were doing our duty. So tell us a little bit about what your idea behind the living room was. I was in Temple Bar. I had just got a studio when I left college. I was in Dunleary College of Art and Paddy Graham actually, a good old friend, he used to teach me and we had um, a bit of a hairy (laughs) time together. I didn't always agree with him, but he, he allowed me use half of his studio when I had time. I had four children at home and uh, I was rushing from where I lived in, into town to Temple Bar. So he saved my life. He, you know, he was really brilliant. So I was still full of energy and I just had the wall, had a big wall and I just, I used to just put up canvases 
And so I never knew how, how big or how small it would end up, could end up quite small. And then, of course, I had so much to say. I did have a lot to say. And can you talk us into some of the ideas behind the living room and the myths that might be associated yeah. with this maybe suburban lifestyle? Yeah. Well, I came from a really lovely family, very conservative, very safe. Mass every weekend, but my sister would bring me to Mass every day. She became a nun. And we said the rosary at night, and it was all about bonding the family. So I was the youngest by far. And so I had this really tight, steady family, and we were all safe in the world <laughs> until I grew up. And when mum died, and I started to see the world as it really is, and I got married, and we were put into these little houses for young married couples. Uh, little boxes on the hillside and most of the people there were actually from the country, most of the couples, often a nurse and a policeman I noticed and we didn't know each other and you're thrown there, your husband went off into Dublin every morning and come back in the evening and so we give loads of time to reflect and having babies. This, was, this, is, this is a triptych and it's the biggest work I ever did at the time and it's my first big work and I have no space at home and I wanted to do this at home so I had to break it up into three and I had lost a baby and had been treated very badly in the hospital and uh, I came home really heartbroken and they put me on Valium and this is really the after Effects of Ali. Piece. It's um, it's a woman. It's a nude woman lying. Uh, yeah, because so she's propped up, and it's like the pillow is black and navy and dark. Which the red is? I don't know. What, it, it's probably anguish. I don't know. Red. I usually use red. I use red quite a lot. And what do you think of? I mean, that's a portrait. Is that a portrait? It's a from that time. Definitely. So, what do you think of the young self you're looking back on there, Patricia? I think it's very poignant. I do. I had, I had, I had two sons when I did this. So, my gynaecologist had said to me, "Why are you so upset? You have two lovely sons." But I shouldn't mind. There was. Uh, full-term baby and there was just no understanding at all and this was just my reply to him I suppose. Can I to show it? It's a self-portrait and as you can see it's no holds barred and I have a caesarean section there that I'm very proud of and um, an so overworked body I suppose you'd say. So it's it's a nude painting of uh, your body. Of my body, yes. yeah. I wanted to record what a real bo woman's body was like. I didn't put my head in because I am focusing that it's usually the body that is my problem when I see portraits of women. I put her, I decided to celebrate her by making it almost like an actress and she's got lights all around her. So it's a brave thing to do now and say that, but now I don't mind. Like now I say, that is what I look like. And I actually don't mind getting old at all. I love, 
I love people with older skin and it's a challenge to do older skin so I love this room I think this room is my most personal they came down to visit me the wonderful Joanne Mullen from IMAC uh, was my curator and it was she that introduced me to all that was going to come and she used to come down and gather all my work and pick out the pieces she wanted. In the end, I thought this was going to be a show of maybe six pieces. And I don't know how many there are now. <laughs> We're standing in front of this table with a glass case on it. It is stunning. And all my notebooks, well, some of my notebooks are open on a certain page. And my life is in front of me here, really. Catalogues and... And what does it make you think about your career? Well, the first, first time I came in here, I went home crying my eyes out, to be honest with you. I was so moved and so amazed that this was recognised, really. You know, it had been lying in a, in a trailer at the back of our house and all in very bad condition. And the Conservatives here have done an amazing job. And did you feel under-acknowledged in your career? Is that a way you feel about it, or do you, you know, feel...? People say I was, and I was, but I didn't feel it. I couldn't care less. I would go to shows and, you know, I'd go home, and I never wouldn't go say, oh, God, I should be in there. I, you know, I ne that sounds peculiar, but I really love painting. So what's important to me is being able to paint. And the biggest thing for me of all is to have them all together. This could have happened, if this had happened years ago, you'd have seen bits and pieces, and I don't think it would have the same impact. A lot of good things are happening to me this year. I'm, I'm 80 this year, so it's a really good year for it to happen. This is called the, the, the Sunday Ritual, and you can see it's a turkey on the table. There isn't quite a turkey on the table. Uh, it's done on the back of a poster. I made this painting on the back of the kitchen door. It was a flat door we had. So while I was making the dinner, I was going over and painting this. And so that's our living room. And, and, and my and daughter the... and my son and my mother-in-law. And I have the plant over, which looks very threatening, that pan plant, doesn't it? And this is the protagonist, I suppose, yes, <laughs> reading his Sunday papers. And the dishes is the, the woman dishes. of the house. It's a self-portrait. And you're the turkey. <laughs> so it's but a family gathering. It's a Sunday lunch. And nobody notices who's, what they're going to eat, really. <laughs> Patricia Hurl there speaking with Kay Sheehy and Irish Gothic, an exhibition of the work of Patricia Hurl takes place at Emma. It runs through until May the 21st, emma.ie for full details on that. Well, has the debate about climate change concluded? The science is for sure unequivocal, but the challenges ahead in terms of finding clean sources of energy are huge. Although the reality of climate change may be accepted at this point, the, the debate about how we manage the transition away from destructive energy sources still rages. Clean energy sources broadly thought of as wind power, solar, possibly even wave power. Where does nuclear power come into all of this? Carbon free? Yes. But does it pose a threat that makes the medicine worse than the cure? Atomic hope 
is the title of a new documentary which takes a look at a fringe movement advocating for nuclear power, but outside the nuclear energy industry itself. It's released into Irish cinemas this week and with me in studio this evening is its director, Frankie Fenton. Frankie, what what got you interested in this this pro-nuclear subject, I suppose, really? Or or, or did you come at it from a pro-nuclear standpoint? No, well, actually, I was handed an article, I think, in 2009 uh, in Wired magazine that basically talked about this different type of nuclear energy uh, using thorium instead of uranium. Mm. And that seemed to answer a lot of the problems that we have with it, the safety issues, the proliferation, the, uh, you know, just the, the cost. And, and for, for me, it just felt like that this could actually be something that we might need to look into if nuclear isn't as bad as we thought it was. Perhaps it has some sort of use in combating the 85% mm. of fossil fuel that we have to kind of replace. And and before you read that article, if I said nuclear energy to you, what would your kind of gut reaction have been? Absolutely against, 100%. I mean, I grew up um, in RD County Loud across the way from Sellafield. And, you know, in the early 90s, my father Mm. had got cancer. In passing, a teacher had said, maybe that's from Sellafield. And I I kind of grew up with that feeling Mm. that... um, you know, a cluster of people who grew up in, when I grew up in RD had uh, actually had gotten sick from Sellafield. Then, as time went on, um, I watched films like When the Wind Blows, Doctor Strange Love, that kind of thing. And it's just in our culture to be anti nuclear. My favourite shows The Simpsons. So it's Mr. Burns, it's, you know, plutonium falling into rivers with tree eyed fish. That's kind of where I was coming from. Yeah. So to hear like nuclear being talked about in a kind of real positive way was kind of. A bit, you know, and th- this was back in two thousand and nine, so it's quite a quite some time ago. Yeah, because they, 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 we, we do. I'm not far, sure quite how far the the footage goes back uh, in terms of the. the yeah, I think it, it actually starts. I think about ten years ago. So, yeah, yeah. So probably two thousand twelve or then. So in terms of filmmaking, yeah. it's been on your uh, agenda for for quite a while, or it's certainly been on your radar for quite a while. The movement then that you're following. It, were these people all in a group, as it were, as a single movement, or did it start to coalesce as the, as you were filming? Did you see it happening? Explain who they are and what yeah. their kind of outlook is. So, uh, effectively, originally it started with these Thorium people over in the States. They were very much so kind of older gentlemen, for want of a better term, pale, male and stale. These guys, I was shooting in front of, uh, you know... Um, bookcases and they were speaking about the physics of nuclear power mm. and it, that was kind of very hard to understand it was certainly something I couldn't really make an exciting riveting 90 minute film about so it wasn't until I actually started to meet some of these younger people who were coming at it from a point of view from an environmental point of view and who really kind of believed in um using nuclear power for, for means of saving their biosphere, for, for, for want of a better yeah. term. So as time went on, um, it was really difficult to get money to, to make a film about this, especially about climate change, especially about windmills. This kind of thing was kind of very overdone. And, you know, so over time, I suppose, that movement started to get a little bit bigger. They started speaking to one another. And that's when I, as time went on, I started traveling the world and and visiting these people. Yeah. And was there ever a temptation to go to one of the, uh, those who are generating nuclear, electricity from nuclear power sources? Was there ever a temptation to go there and say, well, these guys give us some money to make a film? 
Oh, to to take money from the industry? Yeah. Oh, of course not. No, because I mean, that what sort of integrity? That's not very exciting. But if you if you went in and and made the argument, look, we we want to give both sides of the argument here, and you give us the money, and we'll make the film, but you can't control what we say. Well, there's no real integrity actually in kind of taking money from somebody who has vested interests in, mm. in something like that. That wasn't really the interesting part for me is uh, uh, viewing somebody who's coming at this, uh, being born into this world in the eighties. In the 90s, he's been told that they're actually living in a world where it's going to end in a couple of years due to climate change, due to energy crises. And they want to use all the tools that they can and are, that are at hand to, to solving this problem. And they were saying a, a solution that seemed yeah. to be ignored in, 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 in part because of our fear-based uh, thoughts on this technology. Yeah, there's a quote early on, and I think it's from the guy I'm about to play, Michael Schellenberger, <laughs> where he says about serve the needs rather than the fears. Though he say, he's saying, you know, let, let Let's, look, let's listen to what he says in the clip and we can talk a little bit about him afterwards. He's the CEO of Environmental Progress and he's giving, he gives us here an overview of his argument in favour of n- nuclear power. Why are we so scared of this technology, which is not only the safest way to make electricity, it's literally one of the safest technologies in the world. We know that smartphones, by distracting us, as we drive, have resulted in more deaths than nuclear power. Thousands die in car accidents, boating accidents. I mean, every technology has this huge death toll except for nuclear power, and yet nuclear power is the one that we just stay up night freaking out about. I mean, this is what I love about nuclear, is that the perception of it is so radically different from what the truth is. So we're trying to engage the publics around the world about their fears. Don't pretend like the fears don't exist. Talk to them and show them what nuclear is, that it's, this, that it's the only technology that can lift all humans out of poverty, create world peace, and protect the natural environment. I mean, like what other product has those attributes for sale? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of amazing, right? That's Michael Schellenberger there, CEO of Environmental Progress, in a clip from the film Atomic Hope. Uh, he'd, sell, he'd sell you anything, wouldn't he? He's a feminine anti-nuclear activist. <laughs> yeah, Michael is a very kind of, um, he's a lone wolf really in many respects. And he's kind of, he's one of the characters who is very much so... Um, he really doesn't care about making friends and he doesn't really mm. care who... So he rubs shoulders with the likes of Tucker Carlson. He goes on, you know, he's kind of aligned himself in certain respects with the, in the media, in the, the right-wing media, I suppose is the best way of putting it, yeah. um, which would be very different from the others, say. Um, at the end of the day, though, I kind of respect Michael in many ways in that he just does that. He doesn't care about making friends. He just wants to say, I have found this thing out and I want to tell people about it. But when, when, he, when he starts throwing around claims like world peace and, and everything yeah, else that gets absolutely. getting rid of poverty, that gets those us are all big in. claims. They are. And I mean, what he's actually referring to there is like the nuclear bomb. And it's like many, in many respects, that argument of like, oh, we haven't had a world war since, you mm. know, and that is probably what got everybody else in that, in that small movement very scared of those kinds of words. We don't want to associate with that kind 
kind of thinking about the about the bomb and uh, and uh, you know this is all about making peace for the future and trying to solve this big problem about fossil fuels. Yeah, has he has Schellenberger kind of questioned the whole idea around you know climate change? Is he a climate change denier or has he certainly said, well, do you know what renewables aren't that great either? Yeah, he often gets associated or gets called that. I think across uh, you know in in media. However, mm. I, what I would say about him is he's anti-alarmist. He's definitely he's he's basically saying we have things to worry about. Things might not be as bad as we think they are. We should take a breath and kind of try and 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 work things out. But the worst thing we can do is make people panicked. The other thing that it's important to say is that so he is a kind of a lone wolf and he can, sure. he stands out in terms of the voices that we hear in the in the documentary for sure. But you do have scientists here, uh, you know, who are very much. Uh, and some of them coming from the climate change side of the fence who are arguing here pro-nuclear. Sure. Like, well, I mean, one of the people who really kind of, who's often called the godfather of climate science, um, uh, Dr. James Hansen. Mm. Uh, he was the guy who basically, in a, in a committee, I think in 1988, really, he was the head of um, NASA at the time and basically called out that we have very serious problems coming at us uh, very, very quickly. Um, he is one of the main... Uh, voices again, who's really kind of calling for us to to take heed of um, of the only real um, way we've been able to decarbonize in the time that we need to in the rapid time. To, are, those examples are with France, Sweden, those countries yeah. that kind of did in a ten year period build out a lot of nuclear power and, and completely decarbonize. Of their, course, you, the the big the the elephant in the room here is Chernobyl. Oh yeah, hundred percent. How yeah. important? Because you you have a clip where yourself, in fact, who is the the woman that went to Chernobyl? Uh, Ilda Ida yeah, Ida Ida Rusalmi, who's a biologist. Yes, and um, she was there along with a, a scientist, Professor Jim Smith. He's an academic, is he? Yeah? He is. Yes, he's a professor at Portsmouth University, and he he specialized. He spent the last three decades working in Chernobyl and kind of looking at the data and the effects of radiation um, on, the, on the populace, basically. Right. Well, let, let's have a listen to the two of them. They're on a tour. This is what it is. And it's not just them. There's a kind of a, 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 a mini tourism industry built up around this. Let's have a listen to the clip from the documentary first and we talk about it afterwards. Actually coming here is part of what I want to do exactly because I want to acknowledge the worst possible thing that can go wrong with nuclear. We should learn from these mistakes. We shouldn't ignore them. So clearly yeah. this was something that we really have to make sure never to yeah. allow to happen again. But then we also have to consider the alternatives of having massive amounts of fossil fuels which are killing people when everything goes as it should. What we're doing is balancing risks and we're yeah. saying, do we take this risk or this? And the, 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 the the nuclear risk is something that is horrifying for yeah, us. Yeah. At the same time, we have to balance that yeah. very tiny yeah. risk against the, the known risk yeah. of damage from climate change. So there we go. That's uh, Ida Rochelle and Professor uh, Jim Smith in the Chernobyl plant. And that's a clip from the film we're speaking about, The Saving Atomic Hope. And Frankie Fenton, director of the film, is with, is with me. The atmosphere, because you were there, obviously, shooting that, Frankie. Yes. What, is the, what is the feeling when you walk into that power plant? Oh, it's absolutely... Uh, the first thing that really kind of strikes you is just how big it is. It is a massive, mm. massive building. Um, it's and uh, for, for it's quite emotional, actually. You're kind of walking around this, this place that is so kind of buried 
kind of mm. in our hearts, in our culture and kind of in our minds of, of what it is. Um, but really fascinatingly, I didn't realise that the, it was a fully functional like nuclear power plant into the 2000s. It continued being uh, giving out energy. So we had thousands of employees just working yeah. there all, over all that time. That particular clip had, as, as you say, a group of tourists walking around. Um, Did you have any fear? Were you afraid? You know, I know there were people with Geiger, Geiger counters there and sometimes sure. it would be low and then suddenly it would spring up very high and then it would go low again. You know, w- were you afraid of that? Uh, no, not necessarily. No, not at all, actually. Just purely from kind of dealing with people who are uh, experts in radiation and who yeah. have spent their entire kind of uh, careers lo- looking at the effects of radiation on the body. I kind of was, I was okay with that. But what you give us in the documentary is undoubtedly, it is that side of the argument. We never get the other side of the argument. I'm mm. thinking of a couple of situations. There was uh, the COP23 uh, protest, sure. which was, you know, big uh, anti-climate, big big climate change protest there. Yes. And your guys, were not your guys, but the guys that you were filming were <laughs> yes. on the other side of the footpath yes. uh, they, they they didn't the climate change people didn't want them anywhere near them they did you ask the them. climate change people why well the, the reason I suppose the, the entire film really is about and I point the camera specifically at pro-nuclear mm. activists because we already know the reasons why we don't like nuclear power. We know from just watching The Simpsons. We know why, personally, why we don't like nuclear power. But if we had heard, if we sure. if we had heard, you know, the arguments that they put forward are very persuasive. Yes. But if we had ec- experts on the other side, yes. rather than you know Green Gunge and The Simpsons, if we had experts on the other side, give you know looking at those arguments, yeah. would that allow us to make up our minds? Sure. And it was actually we battled with this quite a lot mm. in the edit, and and probably the reason why is because as soon as you start adding in that balance you know that kind of other side of the of the argument it becomes a completely different show and what you find is you end up going down a rabbit hole so let's say we're talking about nuclear waste for example you end up talking about that for an hour no problem or at least you could make Mm. an entire series on nuclear waste so it was important for us to kind of get through the points of what it was that who these people are and show the humanity of who they were in in a way that is kind of not being seen before and are you interested in making a film about the other side I think if you look up nuclear power film or nuclear film on, in Google, what you'll find is about 590 films that are anti-nuclear. There's probably about two that are kind of about the pro-nuclear things. You talked about growing up in RD and how you felt about it uh, and, and, and and Sellafield and all the rest yes, of it, as, as it was referred to at the time. Mm-hmm. Has your opinion changed then, uh, having made the film? Yeah, I think I think it's certainly. I mean, who the hell am I? I'm a filmmaker. I'm kind of pointing the camera. I'm kind of yeah. just just like anybody listening. You know, who knows? But the the reality is, is that that I know that my perception and my preconceived notions about nuclear power were way off from what the the scientists are telling us. And at a time where we've got eighty five percent of our energy fuel is eighty five is uh, is fossil, and it hasn't budged for decades. And our energy use is going to double, if not triple, by the mm. year 2050. I think it's time to really have a grown-up conversation so, about this. So. Yeah, well, so we need to have a conversation with the other side to get that as well. Listen, thanks yes. for coming into us, Frankie. That's much. Frankie Fenton, the director of Atomic Hope, which will be released in selected cinemas this Friday. IFI and Lighthouse in Dublin, Pallas and Galway and the Omniplex in 
Cork. Irish artist Sinead Niwini has a solo exhibition at Solstice Art Centre in Navan. Highlights a series of new paintings that feature prominent elements of the built environment. Domestic structures, houses, factories, sheds. Over time, some of these buildings have been demolished, reframing the painting as one of recording a landscape constantly in change. The exhibition is called Deep Mapping Unseen Landscapes and delighted that Sinead Niwini has come into uh, in studio this evening. Alon Gwelige in, in this exhibition um, Structure Knosach Imlina Atrav Imel Ardon are the titles you give to the to the various elements or structures within the, the exhibition. How important was that to you Sinead? Kinta for those who are I Definitely titled everything in, you know, a Berlin mm. and the Solstice Art Centre in Navan is a stunning building uh, built by Shelley McNamara of Grafton Architects. So I was delighted uh, to have the opportunity to work with Belinda Quirk, mm. the director, and Brenda McParland, uh, the visual arts producer, because the gallery itself, Sean, is delightful. It's three rooms, basically. It makes it makes up three rooms and they work seamlessly together. So I'm usually an artist who works towards exhibitions mm. and it's possibly 10 to 12 paintings. I've 27 in the main gallery and I have six downstairs in the cafe foyer area. So this is the visual uh, artist's lottery. Yeah, so it's a really, it, in terms of scale, oh, it was something absolutely. That, that you really wanted. It also has natural light and then it has controlled lighting. So if you wanted mm. to be patient and stay in the gallery, you'll have many different experiences and views of the work. Let's talk a little bit about your work, which is called Monument uh, and, and oh, yeah. the M3 motorway, if, uh, very close to the Hilatar. You were inspired by that particular piece of landscape, was it? I clearly remember I was in the studio in the summer uh, years ago, obviously, because that's when it had happened. And there was a the M3 motorways to go through close by the Hilatara. Mm. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I wanted to, you know, make my mark and, you know, if you like, record this. Because I was devastated that on board Planola had given the green light. Yeah. I, you know, I live beside the Dargal River, so I understand bad planning decisions. And I basically created this painting. I created Monument and then Monument 2 uh, based on the debris after the dig to prepare the road and it was a monument to uh, well, destruction. I, I'm, go- I'm going to tweet Monument 2 as, as we're speaking And here, the colour yeah. schemes yeah, and, well, and what I, it looks like. I was it's, trying to pull it up on the screen in front of me yeah, just yeah. to get a, a sense of the colour. So at RTE Arena if you want to see Monument Number 2 from Sinead here and it is, I mean, the first thing that jumps out is the vibrant green of, of the of the background and the down at the very bottom of the and painting it's itself. it's ghostly. There's at least 60 layers of paint on that although you don't really notice it unless you're in front of it mm. and you're you know, taking your time, you go to the edges and you look through, there's a lot of transparency. So the actual process of making that painting was thoroughly enjoyable, but it took a long time, hours, days, weeks. And in some ways, the, the kind of ghost ship Absolutely. is what I see it as that's kind of sailing through the landscape up at the top. Explain the, the, the various structures within that. It, what, you used some of the debris or you, was the debris an inspiration, the starting point? In my head, I wanted to take it and create a a landscape mm. that can you know that I can reference as you know 
just as it is, like the debris from this M3 motorway basically is being reconstructed. But I'm reconstructing the painting for myself as a painter. I have to frame the composition. I have an obsession with motifs that are often central and they are fixed, which, you know, that's definitely fixed. So and the framing devices. So I'm using my language of painting. Yeah. But I'm also referencing, you know, something that's political in the background. And I mean, is it just me projecting the ghost ship idea no, onto that? Not that was at all. in your mind as well. And my paintings are always open to reading. Mm. There's an ambiguity and that's very important. I don't ever underestimate viewers who come to my exhibitions. Um, you know, I do obviously have uh, statements that you know, are available to viewers, but you wouldn't believe the crackers that Mm. people come out with. It's incredible. (laughs) And we had the opening on Saturday and I was blown away by some of the locals and their responses and the readings. And Deirdre actually in the Solstice Arts Centre is working on an education programme. And I was very curious how she would re-articulate my painting practice because mm. I was very adamant like it's it's mostly about the process of painting and it's that kind of language that I, I wanted to I was curious to see how she will visualise oh, it to younger people older people people with visual impairment so Let's tweet Let's tweet another image at this point again at RTE Arena if you want to see this this one is called Still Life which is the title of the exhibition your own exhibition itself Sinead Niwini so um, maybe you would describe what what we're looking at first of all. Again, that uh, the the green seems to be important here. Is it an important motif across the, the paintings in the to exhibition? Be, uh, see, it seems to be you know present. Certainly, the, there's a lot of bondaric. There's a lot of pinks and reds mm. and and dusty pinks. And again, as a viewer, you know, flash kind of images online, you don't really see the depth in the paintings, but there is an awful lot of depth. Mm. But the actual mark making itself, it is a composition of a still life and it's you know my it's 2023 and I often look back at you know the masters but I often have to you know take elements and bring it to to me today in the studio and it was just really interesting even listening to Patricia Hurl while waiting in the station because she was one of my tutors alongside Anita Gruner and Patrick Graham and I think painters really looked to the past and they renew you know we have to renew things uh, to you know, to remain relevant and to re-articulate things, and so re-looking. When you're saying that this was a still life, did you did you build something then that you abstracted slightly, or is this a, a, a representation of what you had built in front of you? It's a mix of both. I mm. actually did a, a drawing block at the time, the studio, because I wanted to have um, I wanted to upscale James Hanley. I at the time I was um, I became a member of the Royal Academy. Uh, the RHA in Dublin and mm. I did uh, you know I met James Hanley and I just love his interest in drawing and his practice so drawing so central to it obviously painting too but side by side but I you know deliberately thought oh I must start drawing and I did a still life but pots and pans and actually referencing that now it's miles away from what you see in my notebook basically Yeah. but definitely James Hanley it triggered something that day and I thought I'll be you know I'm going to be growing up about this and do it properly and again, I, I don't know if I'm projecting onto this, but there's a sense of some kind of vehicular traffic involved oh, in, yeah. in what you have here. Was that there from the, as part of the starting point before it became slightly more abstract? Because what we're looking at is a little abstract as well. Yeah, I tend to draw an awful lot with painting and I have to draw around the idea to, you know, formulate a frame, you know, in the composition. So... I often deconstruct that slowly. So there's possibly 10 drawings that created this structure. That's, Mm. you know, it looks very fragile, but not at all.
Not at all. You mentioned that you mentioned the Royal Hibernian Academy. There, are you about to become a, a full member, or is there a new honour or not? Can you believe that <laughs> in two weeks' time? In fact, the RHA it's our two hundred year anniversary this mm. year. Uh, we're under the uh, first female president, Dr. Abigail O'Brien. A huge yeah. honour, and we'll meet in the model in Sligo on Tuesday, the twenty first. And I will become a senior member or a full RHA member. So I was an associate since 2018 and it is a huge honour. And I'll actually be interviewing Neva O'Malley that day for her uh, exhibition, which is the National Tour of the Venice Biennale exhibition. So I'll be interviewing her for work uh, for an Irish language programme, Imel. So it'll be a really important day for me and I'm really looking forward to it. And I love my colleagues in the Academy, to be honest, Mick O'Dee, Amelia Steen, Pat Harris, Alice Marr, Eilish O'Connell. It'll be a reunion. Diana yeah. Copperwhite, Geraldine O'Neill. The list goes ah, on. Right. Well, listen, <laughs> I'm going to go to the in fact we have uh, some love poetry and some romantic opera for you that's what we have in store but let me tell you that uh, Sinead Nguyeni's exhibition Deep Mapping uh, Unseen Landscape is open now at the Solstice Arts Centre in Navan County Meath it's there until the 31st of March full details on solsticeartcentre.ie and that is our lot for this evening Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research Amandine Passo-Devine was the broadcast coordinator Harry Bookless was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Talk to you tomorrow night, Valentine's night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 